Pardon the technology transfer here. Well, how do you want something? Oh, yeah. This morning's gospel passage, uh, Jesus uh, gives a variety of very quick, short teachings on discipleship and its demands. And they're very, like, uh, kind of koan-like sayings. He speaks about mutual accountability, how it would mark that community of disciples. Talks about forgiveness. Talks about the power of faith. And then he talks about this mindset, this sort of mindset which he thinks should characterize the life of a disciple. And it's a strange one. At least in that context, it would have sounded extremely odd. It was a mindset of humility. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have done only that which we ought to have done. It's a very jarring phrase, unworthy servants, and it's made worse because it's actually not unworthy servants. Literally, it's Worthless slaves, archaeon, worthless. It's used only one other time in the parable of the talents, and that's how it's described, the, 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 the third uh, servant who buried his talent at the end. He says, throw out the worthless slave, exact same phrase, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Seems a tad harsh. It's one thing to describe your enemies that way, as in the parable of the talents. It's roughly analogous as the one who screwed up everything. But here, he's describing his own followers that way, as worthless slaves. It's not just a bad marketing strategy. It seems completely at odds with ancient ethics. So in history of ethics, you have, I mean, the, the kind of paradigm is Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, let's say, Nowhere in there, in this comprehensive list of virtues which develops out of this tradition, nowhere will they talk about humility. It's actually the opposite. There's a virtue called magnanimity, which is great souledness. This is sort of a fittingness for someone who's truly virtuous, has a kind of dignity. It, to those ears, this would have sounded totally debasing, unworthy of someone who's truly great. And yet, this is Jesus' teaching, very paradoxical. Unworthy slaves. That's the mindset. This is the key. When I looked around in modern commentators, it's interesting, a number of them, a large number of them, think that for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into, we should just drop this verse. It's really too problematic. It's been overstressed and overemphasized, and they're not totally wrong. There's something right about what they're saying. So let me give some of their reasons they give. First, it's borderline abusive language. So, as I mentioned, the translations often downplay the harshness. So our ESV translation, Ryan read it, it would say worthless servants, and it's really uh, or unworthy servants, really worthless slaves. But slave language is very problematic. This word slave, doulos, is like, it's all over the New Testament. What to do with it is a vexed problem for biblical commentators and New Testament scholars, which I have no business trying to adjudicate, but... It is very clear that everybody understands it's all over, and it does mean literally slave. You can't get around that. Slavery was widespread in that context. 20% maybe of their population would have been slaves. This is language that they readily embrace, and Paul would later go on to introduce half of his epistles, like, I am a bondservant, I am a slave for God. Well, in the modern context, some of these commentators point out, now we have the horrors, the stain of America's, the slavery in the Americas, which is even in some sense surpassed much more dark than biblical slavery. And they said, well, we've got to change the wording here. 
And so there's some good reasons for thinking bond servant. Let's use a different word, servant, bond servant, something else. Maybe like indentured servant, we don't know. So that's one reason. There's another problem, though. Even if we change the language, it's considered kind of inappropriate to use this. And again, for fairly good reasons, they point out, look, and sometimes uh, it's uh, feminist biblical scholars who have pointed this out, these sorts of verses are built around a historically patriarchal frame where pride was the central key vice. And it's a sort of male, a sort of dominance narrative thing where suddenly that's the frame you use and then everything else becomes around this thing. And so you just end up telling people this is how to, how to think, get this mindset in your head, when it's totally inappropriate for some people. There are many people who have been traumatized and brutalized in their life. And to come to them and say, here's the mindset you should have, this would be really damaging. It would be kind of clinical malpractice to tell them, you should think of yourself as a worthless slave. This is not someone who needs that. They need uplift and encouragement. They need something else. Their soul has been beaten down. Well, suppose we separate out that class of people. What about the rest of us who haven't necessarily been traumatized and abused? They point out, these commentators, even then, you probably shouldn't use this, phrase, this, this uh, passage. You shouldn't stress it very much. And this is a very modern turn here. This is because it feels too negative. It clashes with modern sensibilities about the spiritual life. When you think about what is your spiritual mentor supposed to do for you? You know, you sit down with them, you climb the mountain, you find this guru, and they say, let me tell you the meaning, the purpose, the secret that will unlock everything. And you're expecting, yes, you know, surely you're going to tell me, believe in yourself, you know, the, you're amazing. The power and truth is within you. That's what it is. There must be something like that. It's something inspiring, and instead it's the opposite. It says, think of yourself as a worthless slave. There's something right about this critique, too, because there is something good about being positive. And positive talk is actually a lot of how we, we uh, kind of frame much of our, say, clinical psychology or pastoral counseling. And so this just feels so jarring, we don't know what to do with it. So the modern conclusion agrees with the ancient one for very different reasons. It says, yeah, humility, this is the wrong thing. We don't want this. This is not the virtue we want to stress. The right approach is self-care, positive talk, something else that's more encouraging. What do we do with that? Well, I think we can find ways to understand what Jesus is doing here a little more carefully. If we look at some of the details of the text and the rest of the surrounding scriptures, and it shows a more complicated story. So the first interesting kind of surprising thing that I think even commentators on these passages often miss is that Jesus is very careful to teach this mindset in contextually appropriate ways. It's very interesting. Jesus is, I think, brilliant in the way he speaks differently to different people depending on their place of need. The classic example, which most of you probably come to, right, to mind right away, is how he deals with Martha and Mary. In uh, John 11, you have the death of Lazarus, their brother, and Jesus engages Martha and Mary in ways that are totally different. And what's really kind of wild is it even matches other can canonical gospels, the way they describe these two figures. So the way Martha's described elsewhere, you know, well, that's, you needed to do with this only one necessary thing. She's the busy one, the one who needs, she needs a discourse. She needs some sort of active talk through it, you know, let's go through the, the problems of the Messiah being here in the right time. And, the, and Mary, on the other hand, just needed to be she, someone to weep with her. There's a case where, very obviously, Jesus is versatile. 
And here, too, in Luke 17, in the first verse that Ryan read, Luke starts out by saying he addressed the disciples. First of all, this word disciple, it's an interesting. Mathetus is this uh, Greek word which literally means student, pupil. It's actually the word where we get mathematics. This is really interesting if you think about that, whole other sermon there. Mathematics, the rigor and precision of mathematics comes from this sort of student relationship. That's what they use to describe how you relate to a teacher like Jesus. What it is universal, I think, in across context in the use of this word is it means a very tight relationship with your teacher. It's not like you signed up for a class, you just show up at 2, two to 4.30 on Tuesdays. It means every day you're with this teacher. You're learning and kind of Im- imbibing almost like you, the, the better analogy may be like martial arts or something. You learn from your sensei. You, have, you just kind of live with them, and that's kind of how you learn. That's the sort of person that he's addressing. So Luke right away says, this isn't a teacher for everybody. This is for the disciples. And then he goes on to say, it's not just the disciples, which is a very small set among all the many people Jesus addresses, the thousands on the hilltops. No, this is a small set. But then he goes, makes it even smaller. A few verses later, in verse 5, right before we get to this worthless slave part, he uses a phrase that only Luke tends to use, hoi apostoloi, the apostles. Luke's not an apostle. And he makes, it, he makes a point to say, this was addressed just to the apostles. Almost nowhere appears in the New Testament, but where it does, it's, all, it's very clear. It's at most the 12. Okay, so he is talking to some very particular people here. He's stressing humility to people who have some status, or at least are going to go on to have extreme status. These are these set of males, the central males who will be his leaders in his new movement. Now, it doesn't mean that this mindset is inappropriate for everybody else, but it's interesting how Jesus does tend to stress humility and ways of self-deflation uh, to anyone who has a position of success or outward presentation of the being holy or morally upright or something, and yet that kind of disappears to what anyone who has a position on the, on the opposite side of that. So it's very contextually, I think, varied, the way he re- uses this language of worthless slaves. And I think that goes some distance to addressing our first two problems, you know, that Jesus' teaching this mindset is inappropriate or harmful. But we do need to think about this third problem. It's just too negative. It's the wrong kind of thing to, like, build your spiritual advice on. But what should we say about this? Well, one thing is that Jesus teaches a mindset of authenticity and not false modesty. So Greek, the, the humility, humility means, the, the word here is tapenos, kind of like very low to the ground. Literally, it's like low to the ground. Your table's low to the ground. So being humble is to be low to the ground. But there's this weird puzzle about humility. And it's actually one that's attracted the interest of a number of moral philosophers today. They're actually, it's a current topic people are working on. It's very easy to state, though, and you kind of, everyone kind of knows it. It's like this, you know, the thing about humility this sentence sounds very strange. I am so humble. Uh, the more lowly you think of yourself, the more you might notice it, and then you start realizing, I'm so humble, but then you get in this loop where you're like, well, that doesn't feel very humble. I can't. If you're really humble, you shouldn't know you're humble, but then how could that be if you actually want to attain to the truth? It's a puzzle. Philosophers love puzzles. They go to town working on solutions to these puzzles. I'm not that interested in that, but there you go. It's, a, it's an interesting problem. Well, interestingly, the classical Christian tradition was aware of this puzzle. 
So even as early as Augustine in his, in his epistles, and later Aquinas develops this, they say, look, we got to make a distinction. There's false humility, and there's true humility, and there's a big difference. Now, you might think false humility, the way when I say false humility, what you probably think is the modern term like humble brag. You know what humble brag is? This is one of the marvelous words given to us by social media culture, like virtue signaling, that captures a social phenomenon that was always there, but now we have a nice little tag for it, and you can see it, you know, 20 times when you scroll up your feed. Uh, a humble brag is where you, you know, uh, you say something that's sort of overtly self-demeaning, but really you're bragging. You know, you're like, I totally botched that photo shot, uh, the, the cover story photo shoot for the Time Magazine cover I'm doing. It's a, I really did a terrible job there. Um, it's like pretty transparent. It, this stuff doesn't tend to work. You can, you can read right through it. They're just using that as a way to like inflate themselves. That's, let's call that humble brags. That's not what Aquinas and Augustine are getting at. False modesty was something different. It's a humble brag where you actually believe it. So false humility is where you, it's pretended it's acted out for others, yes, but you've actually forced yourself to believe it. You've convinced yourself that you really are this lowly when you're not. So it's like, it's at odds with the truth. The truth is somewhere, it would be to, to deny your own aspects of goodness and yet somehow convince yourself, I'm not really that good at something. And for a lot of contemporary Christian culture, that is how humility has been conceptualized. You just convince yourself you're really bad somehow in ways that you really aren't because it just seems like the right thing to do. So false humility is this problem. And they say, well, true humility is to think of yourself rightly, to, to kind of grasp intellectually what you actually are and just say, well, I think of myself like that, no more, no less, just that. It's a little more than that, but that's a start. And so they, they raise this question, well, how do you get that? They say, okay, well, one main move you have to make is changing the object of comparison. Traditionally, human pride and humility, all this stuff, we're, we're thinking of other people. We're going around, we're gonna, going through our peers, the ones we compare ourselves to, and we say, how am I ranking relative to that? You make yourself a little list, and I'm in the top quartile, no, I'm in the bottom. And you try and convince, you know, convince yourself, you know what, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm right at the median, whatever gets you going. And... Um, that focus and comparison on, uh, with others, you, it, it can work for a while to just sort of make yourself feel better by, for example, finding someone below you on the rank. But of course, the inevitable problem is for almost everyone, there will be someone above you. Both will always be there. And that's why a lot of positive self-talk is so problematic. It doesn't really work in the end. And it gets ultimately kind of unstable, and that's why you often find the most arrogant people are deeply insecure at the same time. Now, true humility is different. It would focus, it would change the object of comparison. Instead of you, it would be on God's goodness. And now they had a critical tool there that they used that we often conceptually don't have access to. The classical tradition, they had inherited a Neoplatonic idea that all goodness that you ever see, anything good that you've ever done, anything good that anyone's ever done, is somehow reflecting an aspect of God's goodness. And that's actually the true goodness is up there. And this is just a, an instantiation. It's very platonic. Not all Plato is bad. I, I, a lot of Christians get this. We, are, we were not like Plato. Not all Plato. The, the grand tradition said, well, he was right about some things. He was wrong about some. This is one area where there's a lot of advantages to the Neoplatonic view, I think. Because it understands, look, if you are really good at something, it's just because you're reflecting some aspect of God's goodness in that. 
There are tricky problems with this Neoplatonic view. People are like, oh, what's a really good tuna sandwich? Where's that in God? How do I... That's a puzzle. There's answers, but we don't have to worry about those because the things that we tend to take pride in or the things that we need to be humble about are actually very easy to map onto attributes of God because they tend to be moral virtues, excellences in skill, like your success in life, your fame, your ability to get money or whatever it is, how good looking you are, even beauty. These are all can be directly mapped into aspects of God. God is beautiful. God is wealthy. God is intelligent. God is successful. God is powerful. All those things. Now, when that's your standard, it's just insignificant. The variation among humans is like completely flattened. If that's your model for humility, it's suddenly not that hard. You don't have to fake it anymore because you're looking right at it. You're looking right at the source of all these goods. There's one more thing, though. Uh, every theophany, whenever God appears in the Bible, the human response is invariably the same. It's deep humility. It's never chummy, I'm best friends with God, here you are, it's great. It's always, I'm unworthy. So Jesus' teaching, he focuses on a, a variability, a contextually appropriate way of, of, of looking at it. He teaches authenticity and not uh, a false modesty. And there's one more thing. He, he teaches it's a paradoxical kind of way to psychological empowerment, which is what we were after all along with the kind of modern self-talk, uh, the positive self-talk version. So you consider, okay, why did Jesus bring up this whole worthless slave thing to begin with? Well, go back in what Ryan read. So first, the disciples ask him, how do we increase our faith? That's the question. How do we increase our faith? Why did they ask that? Well, because he's telling them, this is the important things you got to do. you got to forgive people at this level. It seems like a superhuman thing. And how do we increase our faith? And then it's interesting. He says, Instead of saying, here's how you increase your faith, he just says, if you had a little, you can do amazing things, astounding things. Just a little. He doesn't say, well, how did you get it? Then he launches right into this. His answer to how do you get it is, they have this mindset. Think of yourself as worthless slaves. That's his answer to how you get more faith. Now, there's something very interesting going on here. So in the text, there's a connection between, you know, getting more faith, doing great works, and having this mindset. These are all connected in this text. Now, you've got to put these together and see how could this answer this. If Jesus is right, there's a deep paradox here. Paradoxically, you get empowered through self-humiliation in one sense because you think about pride. Pride is the attempt to, to focus on relative in that metric, you know, your top 10 ranking of whatever you are and compared to all the other people. Like, I'm going to... Pride disempowers because it, there's always insecurity lurking in the background. It tries to aim for this feeling of empowerment. In the end, it's always disappointing you. And that's the inadequacy of like a pep talk psychology. You know, pep talks are really interesting. Pep talks have a good role. I mean, it's important in some context to give yourself a pep talk or for your friend to, to give your friend a pep talk, them to give you a pep talk. Pep talks work when they're reminding you of something that you know and believe is true, but you're just it's just tough to keep in mind. They do not work when you're trying to convince yourself of something you just don't believe is true. And an enormous amount of energy is expended by people trying to convince themselves that I really am good enough, I'm really good, when it's like, I just don't believe it. And it doesn't work that way. You will never get there by just trying to talk yourself into it. Like so many things, if you try and aim right at the thing you want, you don't get it. 
But if you go this paradoxical alternative route, which looks all wrong, you actually end up getting it. So to have a sustainable psychological positive self-concept, you want to avoid the pep talk mentality. If you don't, I've seen this happen. It can break out in some very bad ways. People were trying to convince themselves. There's this enormous amount of tension and energy being like, I am great, I'm going to do this, whatever. I'm pumping myself up. With it. And then you see it break. And it's very, it can be very tragic. It can be very traumatic. It can lead to depressive episodes. People, I'm just totally worth it. They're crushed, completely devastated. So the modern approach is talk yourself into believing you're great, you're amazing, but then you're deeply insecure. But this humility-centered approach is think much less of yourself because you're looking at God's far greater goodness and suddenly you do more. The reason why you have this is to get more faith. The reason you have more faith, you can do great works. This is the paradox. There's a deep irony here. The world tells you pump yourself up and you feel insecure. And Jesus tells you let yourself be small next to God. And you will do great wonders. So humility leads to an eventual exaltation by God. And that is what connects all the other metaphors that Jesus uses, that you become children of God, that you are grafted in, all these other very high, high kind of concept things that seem at odds with this. The paradox is you, there's a pathway to it. You start with humility. It always starts with humility. And that's one of the big reasons why Christians never got rid of the Old Testament. The immediacy, the visceral nature of like, the raw experience of God that is contained in the Hebrew scriptures that leads to just bow in reverence. That is the starting point. You have to start there to get to the intimacy that Jesus is talking about, where it's the God as Abba, as Father. So to recap, Jesus teaches a contextual humility, an authentic humility, and an empowering humility. And just finally note that he did embody this in his own life. So he didn't have false humility. He had no illusions about his stature. He wasn't going around saying, oh, yeah, I'm just nothing. He was very, almost daring people to say, son of man, that is who I am. He didn't hide or minimize the great works he was doing, and yet he really was, in a weird way, humble. That's the odd thing about Jesus. He was a man humbly born, he led a humble way of life, and he had a humble mindset. For as he said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Amen.